Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Faces and FinOps podcast powered by ProsperOps. I'm your host, John Meyer. Now, the Faces and FinOps podcast is all about highlighting thought leaders in the cloud financial management space and insights and how they're making an impact not only within their organization, but within the broader FinOps community. Today's guest is Steph Gooch, who is a senior optimization solutions architect on the AWS Optics team. She specializes in helping customers with cost optimization, financial processes, and cost-aware culture. Hmm, cost-aware culture. Sounds like a FinOps thing, right? Please join me in welcoming Steph to the show. Steph, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, John. Excited to be here. So Steph, we were talking before uh, on the number of members from the AWS Optics team that I've had on the show. I haven't had everybody yet. I think we, I need Alex. Uh, there might be one or two more. And we were joking like Pokemon, got to catch them all. And yeah. we will have everyone on the Faces and FinOps podcast, hopefully in the next six months. Exciting. No, we've got so many great people in the team. So I'm looking forward to listening to their episodes as well. So Steph, how about we jump in a little bit of backstory about yourself and maybe just step back before AWS and the optics team. Yeah, sure. So uh, before I went to AWS, I was actually a DevOps engineer for a couple of years. So straight out of university into uh, an audit company where I was a DevOps engineer and then kind of worked my way through that learning from zero note cloud knowledge all the way up to managing a couple of different production workloads. And then I was doing actually a master's in IT and I did a dissertation on cost optimization and visualization in the cloud, which is a mouthful. And it really opened the door of when I started to look into this world of FinOps and kind of get interested by it. And then I presented the idea to creating a FinOps team to my company. And they were like, sure, go for it. I'm making a CCOE anyway, like someone needs to look after this thing. And then, yeah, grew out this FinOps team, FinOps practice, and just has been working in that kind of area ever since. Okay, were you one of the original members of the FinOps organization or FinOps team? Like, how does that work? I, I think I remember from our conversation. Yeah, so the FinOps Foundation itself, I remember being there just, I think, as it was starting, I always call myself one of the original members. I think I am one of the original people. Um, and so when I met them, it was from a meetup that was hosting by an Amazon Summit Day. It was like by one of the third parties. And I just started chatting about FinOps and made some friends. And then they invited me to CloudyCon. That was like the pre-FinOps Foundation event where I started speaking. That was the first conference I ever spoke at. I actually was digging up photos for something we're doing for the optics team of me um, from that conference. And I look exactly the same in terms of the facial expression I get excited by pulling. So I was... Uh, bringing those pictures back but yeah so that was my first conference i spoke at and then continue my relationship with the foundation which is now a member of well, aws is now a member of the foundation so from that looking i remember talking about it that day uh when i did my first conference talk with some people from amazon and we were kind of like yeah maybe we'll kind of look into joining and then now we finally and i got to be part of the people who helped make that happen so very excited that we're finally here Steph, I want to touch on that in a few moments, but how about we talk about your title and what you're doing currently at AWS, the Senior Optimization Solutions Architect. What is that? What does that entail? So in its basis, it is a solution architect. That's the, the ground level for it, but with a kind of focus on optimization. So it's the same way you have specialist solution architects at AWS, we're just an optimization focused one is how I kind of describe it. So I always think of it as before, we'd have kind of people who look at the billing areas in our team, who high level look at optimizations. Then you have another role that's more about strategy and helping people get things over the line and devising how are we going to do this optimization FinOps journey. And then you have people like me who are there to 
go a little bit more technical, go a little bit further. So bringing into scope kind of how we go into application level design to make it more optimized. How do we look past the low hanging fruit and help them come up with plans to do that? And I try and use some of the technical abilities that I've have to lay out how I would create scripts for the customer, uh, not giving them a script per se, but kind of showing them what I would do um, and advice on that. Or even just talking through concepts. I had someone reach out asking me, how they would hypothetically get this data from this thing and then put it with this. And I was like, oh yeah, I've got a foundation knowledge in that. Let's go and try things out and start optimizing from a, t- a technical point of view. You mentioned looking past the low hanging fruit. Why? Why is that? Because these days, more and more customers don't need to do low hanging fruit. Uh, I was saying I've got a, a customer event next week, a fin hack, which I'm very excited about. But when I looked at their data, I was like, oh, pretty optimized <laughs> like how do we how do we go past this what's the next step in delete past deleting unutilized ebs volumes and uh right sizing your instances like how do we look past that and so there's a lot more demand especially from the customers that we deal with in optics to go that little bit further so yeah that's why we created the role some of the low-hanging fruit uh, comes back to me with like you know s3 right you know going yeah. using glacier ebs volumes optimizing getting rid of unused stuff uh, right sizing, those are the low hanging fruit that you're talking about. And some of the stuff that you're working on now is really optimizing like the architecture or improving some of the processes and applications and services that they're utilizing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I think a lot of the times, well, not a lot of the time, some of the time it's also about how to avoid the low hanging fruit in the first place. So I always have a big push for making changes in your infrastructure as code so that by default, you don't have any of that waste. So one of my favorite examples is um, incomplete multi-part uploads that you get from S3 when you upload an object that's too big, it basically gets broken down into smaller objects and then uploaded in a uh, kind of over the line. And then it reassembles at the end. However, if something happens when you're in that upload process and it cuts out and it fails, you the object parts that made it to S3 is still there and you're still paying for them. now. It is the simplest thing to get rid of those. You just create a very small lifecycle policy that looks out for them and gets rid of them for you. And the fact that people don't have this on their buckets by default always astounds me. And it's only like six lines when it comes to CloudFormation. So when I work with customers, we often kind of use that as a, this isn't saving a huge amount of money, but it's more about setting those things in your Terraform or in your CloudFormation. So when you deploy them, any new resource moving forward, you never have to worry about those things happening again. Or And you can obviously do the kind of let's go and apply on a bucket. So another area that I would do is how do we mass do this? So if you have a lot of, I mean, everyone has those accounts that are like everything is made manually in the buckets. You don't know where they came from because S3 buckets are a classic resource that gets spun up by hand. And so you might want to automatically roll out uh, that policy. So how do you do that? So I'll create like an example script for my customers to look at, to say, okay, this is how I would do it. And then you can look at it, have your security teams review the concept, allow yourself to set this up and uh, maybe use it so that you can mass put a policy on. But a lot of this stuff is always theoretical examples that we give customers so that they can do it because as always, we're here to advise and support. We're not here to give you a script to deploy on your account. <laughs> Steph, about the multi-part upload, here's what I envision as an engineer, somebody that's going in there. I am uploading a huge file to S3 and then it does a multi-part upload, but then it errors out, right? It doesn't complete. My assumption from an engineer, and this is where the education comes in, is that, okay, it didn't complete. Nothing should have uploaded, should have deleted everything. It wasn't a complete process. I didn't get files one through four, however it looks like. 
but that's not the case. You're telling me that some of the multi-part upload, if it's four files that are going up and two only made it and two didn't, the two that made it are there permanently. Is it like in a waiting state? Yeah, so it's it's more about the like parts of the file rather than like multiple different files. But um, very, very small nitpick on what you said. But the um, but the you can't see the the files either. They're just kind of there waiting to be finished assembling, uh, and they just and you can't see them in the buckets. You can see them in your spend, and you can see them in uh, if you look on the shout out to the kudos dashboard. If you look on there, there's a very handy visual that shows you exactly how many uh, multi-part uploads requests there are and how many of them are kind of failed. So I use that as a guidance because I've seen buckets that have like 5 million um, of these requests. And that's where you say, oh, hang on, why is this happening? And that is also a lot of what the architects do, the solution architects do, is, is kind of ask the question why it's like this. So if I see a huge number on a bucket, and there's always one bucket in a customer's account that's like a million, and you go and figure it out, and it's probably because it's some kind of application logging bucket, and some part of the upload process is failing, or it could be something like I see a lot is Athena. So when you create uh, Athena, when you set up Athena database, you have to have an output bucket for your queries to go to. Now, if you start running a massive query and then you cancel it halfway through, some of that data is already going to S3. So you should really set up those policies to avoid it. And in uh, like, for the future, spoiler, I've got a, a kind of blog series coming out that's gonna cover some of these low hanging fruit bits. So uh, keep an eye out for the AWS blog channel for that. There's so much I wanna talk about. Obviously the kudos dashboards that have come out, but let, let's talk about the multi-part upload. I'm actually getting off track here, but I'm very curious about how some of this is handled. With the multi-part upload and the files that are there, or the parts, right? So I called them files. There were four files, but four parts, right? And they're sitting there. That's not visible within the bucket. Is it visible within the cost and usage, you know, report? Is it, what about the cost explorer? Like, is it visible within my account that I can see that it's doing that or I have to run a specific report or the kudos dashboards are my way to go? So there's two ways you can see it. The first I've already said is kudos. So there is, there is data in the cost and usage report that alludes to the fact that these multi-part uploads exist or incomplete multiple uploads so that is the first place that you can go and see it the second one is s3 lens so if you look in your s3 lens and you go on the very first page and you filter by cost optimization rather than summary uh, in like the first drop down box if you're looking at it in your screen now you should be able to see any listeners who are doing that and if you change the cost optimization you can see a little percentage of how many bytes are incomplete multiple uploads and then you can in that dashboard it does have a lot of information about where those are and how many gigabytes or terabytes or whatever your you've got stored in your bucket that are incomplete well, Steph, thank you so much for educating me. I was actually unaware of the multi-part upload and that it wasn't visible within the default bucket. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and I, I actually wanted to ask what was your day-to-day, week-to-week, but that kind of seems like some of your processes and some of the things you do for customers as you take a look at this as an overall holistic view of some of the improvements they can make on their account, correct? Yeah, definitely. And so I look at it as there's two kind of things. So I also, as part of my job that I in this team is I create a lot of content for AWS so I mentioned the blog I'm I'm kind of in the process of sorting I also have a twitch show that I do all about optimization so any of these optimizations that I find and I 
dive into I always try and make uh shareable so another part of my day-to-day will always be like okay how do I reuse this as a concept and how do I make a uh, how do I roll out to not just the one customer I'm working on today but my entire port my entire portfolio of customers and then how do I make it easy to access for the wider AWS customer network so that is a big part of what I'm always trying to do and this is yeah this is a great example where I've noticed it on something and I'm not the only one Please don't think that I've discovered that this is a the but multi-part upload is a thing. Uh, there's a really good set of blogs that are on S3 Lens about it. There's some really great workshops that show you this information. But I think sometimes people don't realize how easy it is to fix and how it should just be there by default on all of your buckets. And it is one of those things where like, okay, let's see how we can how I can go and get as many people as possible to go and set this up because they're just wasting money on something that, like you said, they can't even see. You talked about your Twitch show. How about a shout out for it? What's it about? When is, when does it stream? It's called the Keys to AWS Optimization, and it's on the Twitch.tv uh, channel on Twitch. Yeah, Twitch. Wait, Twitch.tv/AWS channel, and it's on ten thirty Eastern time every Thursday. It's all about optimization. So we have guests on. We've had John on. Uh, come yeah. on, and we talk all about um, different ways in which you can optimize accounts. We've had customers come on. We had somebody coming on. I think it was last week. Who or whatever this airs, it'll be a while ago. But that we had someone on who told us about how they changed 21 resources and they saved like $1.2 million a year just by making a small configuration change and how that can impact. So it's not only about kind of stories of the world of FinOps, but it's also about specific optimization recommendations that you can implement in your accounts. Well, let's switch gears over to FinOps because we were talking about that. AWS just recently joined the FinOps Foundation. What are your thoughts? I love it. You can see behind me, if you can, I didn't realize how FinOpsy, if anyone's watching on video, this shelf is. I've got the bandana, I've got the fox, the board game and the book. And if you get the board game, you might you might find a Stefan Alex card in there uh, that you can play, which is quite cool. Wait, there's a FinOps board game? Yeah, that's, that's the okay. box there. So uh, shout out FinOps Foundation, shout out Rob who gave me that. Uh, so you can get the FinOps board game, which I still need to play because apparently it's quite confusing but there's a lot of different stages to it but yeah there's a whole board game you could play well what is aws role specifically for finops how are you now educating you've always been educating customers on cost optimization cloud financial management been doing it from the beginning but now the term finops has really come into play and customers are realizing that they need this new culture within their organization in order to make sure that they're not wasting a ton of money within cloud, but they're using it in an optimal way. Like how is AWS helping now? So I think joining the foundation is okay. the first step. I feel like we're going to get more involved in things like the focus project to make sure that all data can be, I think, I guess, normalized across different providers, which is exciting. We also want to be more engaged and get more customer feedback. And so that's the kind of things that I'm hoping that us joining the foundation will do. And then in terms of us overall, I think more and more we're looking to help customers in the two main ways I see is is obviously saving money. So we're always, and we've always done this, advising on how to make sure that what you're spending on the cloud is the most use for you. So I think it's JR that always says that the FinOps is not about saving money. It's about, what is it, making money? That's it. Making money. Yep. I use that quote often when I post support. (laughs) And so it's, that's like the same thing as we want you guys to be a successful business out there. So I do think that we're pushing to help that. And I think more we're looking at strategies as well. So I liked uh, my previous, before I was an SA, I was a commercial architect and that's where I spent a lot more time doing the strategy stuff. So helping 
as many customers as I could set up a FinOps team, helping them to find the roles, helping them get the data. So I think more people at AWS are leaning towards that side of helping people set things up because in all honesty, it's getting the same to be as how people do security. That's what I always strive for people to think about it the same way as they think about security, that it should be as important in a different, or I know that isn't it security, is it ground zero, point zero, whatever the first thing is? Uh, point five. Point five. Yep. So FinOps should be the <laughs> Mary next Hughes one. quoted that in the book. If the security is zero, then FinOps is 0. 0.5. That's it, yeah. So it should be 0. 0.5. So I think that there's um that's the next thing is us making sure that a lot of people have it as a priority when they're moving to the cloud. Are you helping customers or partners implement FinOps or the FinOps culture within their organization and help them understand, like really put in the best practices? You said you're identifying the actual correct people that should be in place for that. And, you know, kind of building out the processes, building out the team. Is that kind of one of the, the new goals for that? Or are you maybe an extension of the partner and helping them do FinOps a little bit and then kind of backing away? So a lot with our customers so i'm only speaking for optics as well to to make sure that i'm not stepping anyone else's toes in amazon but for us we have the dedicated role now we as i said so i mentioned that i i'm a solution architect we've had the come we had a commercial architect that i was and we still have that as a as a role and their job is the ones that do the strategy now so their goal is to help do this thing that i just mentioned setting teams up in organizations and a big part of finops is always about bringing together business technology and finance this is like another byline of their their concepts right and so i think when we speak to our customers we often have to have that conversation and say like okay we've got maybe like one person from that three in here we need you all to come in so we did a long-term project with a customer of mine speaking to all those individual parties and having education sessions with them individually so that they could actually all speak the same language so we had shout out tony and my team who did a six-week course with the finops team of this customer and then they were able to kind of be way more self-sufficient and stop asking questions to the central teams or to the DevOps teams because they already, they set up them with Cost Explorer and kind of understood what those things mean and explained and monetized and unblended on those kind of things. So I, I've gone off on a tangent, but yeah, so we do, I think a big part of what we do when we speak to customers is advising them on the best way we've seen in setting up a FinOps team so that they can have all those parties involved. And like I said, speak the same language. How important is it for everyone to speak the same language within the organization for FinOps in general? Like, I mean, for me, here's what I'm thinking. It's not the FinOps language. It's just the business language where engineering is speaking about like an instance and finance is speaking about the cost of a specific VM. And they're like, well, it's a VM. No, it's an instance. You know, how important is it to have the same language in order to implement FinOps? Oh, I think it's crucial. I, there was um, at FinOpsX, Ali Whitman did a presentation about cost reductions versus cost savings. And that was something that I knew nothing about. I, I It's not something I've, I always use the word savings. And I thought that was it. I thought everyone knew what I meant. And apparently that's not the case. I didn't even know this. But on my own experience, there was a, a finance person at KPMG raised to work. And we were setting up chargeback reporting. And we had to take into consideration things like... Uh, RIs and savings plans that hadn't been utilized as well ones that had and where they got spent and that kind of stuff and I was giving him separate reports being like okay this is the RI one this is this and this is it. And like, okay bye it's like Steph can I ask you um what is what's what is a re what is what is a re and I was like a what and he's like 
this thing, this R-I, really, I'm assuming, I'm like, no, 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 yeah, all right, it's, it's this thing called a reserved instance, and I explained the reserved instance, and he's like, oh, okay, how does that, like, work, and so he, I was like, you've been working with our team for, like, years, has, has no one ever explained to you what this thing is, he's like, no, I just process the numbers, and I was like, oh, my God, okay, let's, ha let's have a little cloud lesson, and then by telling him what these things were, he's like, that makes way more sense. But also he could look for anomalies. He could understand what that actually meant. And if somebody had questions from an application team that was buying things from the cloud team, they would go to him. And then he, rather than coming to me, he could just tell them what it was and explain and be like, okay, here's the documentation. Like, this is what it means. You're actually saving money by paying for this. It's all these good things. So I think that's a good example of where you can give people the power to own a topic and understand it and also make their job a little bit easier because if everyone's confused about what things actually mean and even if you know that you have different like levels of what the description is you could be more flexible like changing for example whenever i speak to my customers i work with like over 30 customers they all have different names for everything they all have different titles different types of teams different things and i do have to make notes and be like okay this is what they call this and this is what they call this and i'm i'm the between so i've got to be flexible to match what they're talking about otherwise if i start calling it something else then they're always going to be confused so it is really crucial and it's not that hard i feel like everyone can just decide what works well what your company defines as the right name for things and make sure everyone has the right education or access to that education so if they don't know you could be like okay this is what we define as this go read about it and that will make your lives a lot easier I like how the Cloud Finance book calls it the common lexicon, the common language within the environment. Uh, you having to deal with 30 customers in 30 different languages, especially, that's actually gets rather difficult because you're an extension of the team for a period of time and you need to make sure that you're on par with everybody and speaking the same language from RI savings plans or whatever they're going to use for their terminology. And if you call it something different. Steph, I'm gonna switch gears just real quick because. I, I got a question for you, and it's usually a challenging one because everybody's like, I got to talk about mistakes, but this is an educational thing. And I'd like to know within all your customers, do you see some of the challenges or mistakes that immature FinOps teams make when trying to implement the culture? Ooh, okay. One I see a lot that just jumps straight to mind is the bore the ocean kind of thing. So somebody gets, and I'm also speaking from my own experience of doing this too. Uh, so when you get excited about FinOps and you start to see, like, is it the matrix where you can see the numbers that I'm thinking of? Where you can yep. like see what's going on. Yeah. So when you start looking in the world of cost saving, once you open that can of worms, you start to see it everywhere. You start to notice it. You start to read stuff. You start to listen to stuff. You listen to this podcast. Maybe you've learned about incomplete multi-part uploads. And suddenly your list of things that you could optimize gets longer and longer and longer. And this is exciting and terrible at the same time, because now you have like 30 things you need to do and you want to do them all and you want your devs to do them all or you want your teams to do them all. But asking all these people to do 30 different things that maybe overlap or conflict or have different priorities is not the best way of doing it. It's the same if you have to tidy your house. If you have all these different things to do, you need to start with the most important ones first. And also make sure that if you're going to, you need to hoover before you mop, something like that to clean the house. Uh, there's a priority list. There's a reason. There's a target list. So what I see a lot with customers is they get this list and they start doing everything. And then it means that some people do some of them, some do others. They don't finish it properly. They don't get it all done. They can't track it because it's mixed in with everything else. So what I always recommend 
as people having more of like a campaign style recommendations. So maybe choosing one or two of the big hitters that get the most bang for your buck, the most success, the lowest the lowest effort to do it, and is also easy to track. So GP2, classic. Tidying up a vital resources, classic. Incomplete multiple uploads, classic. So things that you can do that won't really affect architecture, but will make a big saving impact. So that what you can do is say, guys, please go and change everything you can on this list to GP3, go do it. Everyone, okay, let me go do that. And then I'm, I'm also skipping over the fact that you should put it into Jira tickets or any kind of tickets, your ticket provider may vary. Um, put it into tickets, put in the right information, add the steps in on how to change it. And then once they've done that, you can say, okay, guys, look at the effect this had. And you can see all the savings. And I thought oh, that was good. Okay, that worked. My application didn't fail. And I saved some money. This person who gave me that list, I feel like I could be able to trust them. They seem to have good data. They seem to have good information. Let me, whatever they say next, maybe I'll listen to. And if they say, okay, now we want you to change this CloudWatch thing. A little bit more technical, a little bit more work. Yeah, but we saw what happened last time. Okay, I'll do this. And then you build up that trust and that, that level. And so if you do these things one by one, You'll actually tick them off more successfully than trying to do everything at the same time. Okay, you touched on trust, which is a huge key topic. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there was a lot uh, within it, but actually, so trust is very key. And that is exactly right on how an engineer works and business works and business and finance works is that the level of trust you're trusting a person, uh, the processes have to work. If I go change these GP2, then, you know, and everything worked. I didn't. It's, so the biggest thing with trust is the risk. And mm -hmm. if they don't crash this system and nothing bad happens, they will ultimately build a level of trust. And you have to continue that. And just like anything with trust, if you do something wrong, it breaks that trust. You have to work harder to gain all that. So everything has to go through. I, I see people when, and I'm going to flip back to the conversation of kind of uh, biting off more than you can chew and everybody sees the numbers and they want to do so much boil the ocean. You mentioned I, the, the biggest thing is I see this long list of things that I could do and save my company like $2 million. I'm like, wow, all this together is 2 million and I want to do it. Let's go do it. When in actuality, if we can take some of the big hitters we can get them done. And yes, we're still costing our company money because we haven't tackled these, but we're completing tasks versus incomplete list. Yeah, it's definitely the way forward is this. I, I love this idea. Also, I'm one of those people that loves ticking off things off a list. Um, I know it's probably going to come out after reInvent, but I'm looking to my right where I have a massive like uh, whiteboard and I have... Uh, <laughs> Shout for reInvent, I have uh, four sessions <laughs> booked in that I'm No, doing I can't tonight. see two of them behind you at all. Like yeah, COP no, 205, no, no, COP 342. <laughs> and there's also 219 and there's a repeat of 205. Uh, so <laughs> if anyone's going to, well, it depends when this comes out. But uh, that means that, uh, so I, I was struggling to practice. Like I have a lot of work to practice on. And so I decided to make a checklist. I had to do each session 10 times between now and reInvent. And so the satisfaction of every time I practice to be like, oh, tick, one more closer um, is just enough for me to like keep that motivation. Someone has also promised me a prize if I do complete all of that because it's a long ass. But what I'm that also showcases that like getting people uh, gamification does work, even if it's by yourself. Apparently, uh, a game of one. Steph, I'm going to ask the question in reverse. We talked about immature mistakes or challenges uh, FinOps teams try to implement, but what about mature ones? I see mature ones that there are mistakes that they make along the way. Is there anything, advice you can give them? For, 
how to be better or what do you mean? Well, think about it. I'm a mature FinOps team. I mean, you've, you've helped me. The AWS optics team and FinOps team has helped me implement this and I'm doing so well, Uh, but then I get to a point where I think I can just do this and normally, and it's like, it gets repetitive, right? Are mm-hmm. there a mistake or a challenge that they come across when they're they've right. implemented it for a while? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point because some of my customers they range in maturity, and the ones that I see who are more mature are still they still have a way to go. So I haven't seen anybody who's like super super um, amazing. The most sorry customers, the most perfect fin up thing. But I'm trying to think of what they when I see them get stuck i think is when they go from being kind of like what i said at the start which is they go from being just low-hanging fruit focused and don't think about the bigger picture or how they can implement more long-term successful ones that's where they get stuck at least i think some of them are doing this so for example we talk about right sizing right sizing ec2 very classic you people do this all the time the classic taylor's oldest time or as taylor's oldest cloud moved from on-prem to the cloud instances too big they waste loads of money and then they're like, oh, we have to right size. They right size and then they kind of stop there. That's one thing. So they might think, oh, I've right size and never have to look at it again. And then in actual fact, applications get better. There are more optimal EC2 types. And so there's things like ARM and Graviton. And so they kind of, maybe people stop at right sizing and they don't move on to the Graviton thing. I think that's one thing. But also there's a, the step after that, which is moving to more containerized workloads or more serverless workloads. And that's where I think a lot of people that next shift is the challenge where they're like, oh, I've got a really optimized EC2 instance. And you're like, yeah, but it just does a function like randomly. Why don't you put that on a Lambda function? And there's still that little jump that people have to make. And I think there is a bit of a scaredness to, to do that sometimes because EC2s are just the same as on-prem. They're a safe box that you upstore, you look after. And you even if you are kind of treating them as cattle, you know what you're dealing with in EC2. You could log into it. You can kind of quote unquote touch it because of that logging into it aspect whereas people moving to workloads that are stateless and stuff like that people are less excited to do sometimes some are really great obviously shout out those are doing it uh, but yeah that's definitely where i look for customers to get to the next step of their journey is to do that kind of mindset work you talked about the crawl walk run the maturity level uh even immature finops teams can get to a run level in some applications or some mm. processes that they're doing and mature ones might have more run than their crawl level what are your feelings on companies that make it to a run within their certain process like right sizing right so they're going through this application this application we're right sizing we've done all the optimum stuff we're in a run for that do you feel that they will always be in a run or eventually they should be kicked back to a walk if they're constantly improving? That's a good, I don't know. That's an interesting flavor of like looking at how successful things are. I wonder, I would default to thinking about how do you do it in security? Because I don't know, like, again, I don't know. The uh, the amount, it's one of those things where I'm like constantly working with people who don't know how to do this. And so, when they kind of get past seven certain level, I do not talk to them anymore. Just my customers need to get to that level first. But I do. That is interesting. Do you push them back? I guess it depends on what you're benchmarking at. So if right sizing, if you're the expert right sizer, you've automated all of it. You no longer have any human interaction. It does it all just by data. For like you just tick the box. Unless you move to something else, uh, 
unless you consider them saying, okay, I mean, there's always, I feel like there's always a next level though. I don't, I mean, with AI coming, I don't know what's going to happen, but there is always a next level. So even if somebody has, is like right-sizing reviews regularly and they're using all the data, you could technically automate that. Those that automate it, how much are they comparing different instance types for different parameters? How much are they doing that? How much are they looking at moving to the next thing? So I don't know if you necessarily need to kick them down to a lower grade if they get too good, but I think that maybe it's just what the parameters of right size. If you have right sizing for your standard Intel EC2, that's there's going to be a run of that, but then there's also going to be a run of the automation behind it and the different instance types and the different applications that are on those boxes and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it maybe moves you into a different walk in a different category. A different walk and a different... Actually, that's a good point. I'm going to throw a curveball into that. And here's my visualization of it, right? So I started out this application. And we'll, we'll talk it from an application view. I'm in a crawl. I've improved my application. And now I've automated the right sizing. I've automated this, uh, that. And, and now I'm in a run, right? I'm really performance. But then a new variation of the application comes out, a new EC2 instance. Uh, there's a new faster EBS, right? So there's all these improvements that I can make. At that point, I've evaluated it and said, well, I'm in a run, but now I need to reevaluate because I can improve this or we can go serverless. So now I need to be kicked back to a walk because I am no longer optimizing that instance. I think if you're in a run for too long, that there, there's gotta be a change. Now there are some that are static state, but I think if you're in a run for too long and needs to be reevaluated, are there really improvements that you can make on this? You know, after you get all the other things taken care of. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But then it's just setting the parameters that work for, because I, I think people also think that it, it, there is obviously, there are, we have the Amazon CFM capability assessment. There is the FinOps capability assessment. I think that's come out recently. So there are all these benchmarking tools that allow you to see how you are doing in comparison to different people, but also looking at your own journey, I think it's important of seeing where you were like a walk when you first started in your company and how far you've gotten to, and then being realistic about, okay, could we could we be better? And the answer is probably yes. Steph, do you feel, and we, we actually talked about AI coming up, do you feel like generative AI or AI in general is going to impact your role or roles within the FinOps? Oh, John, you sound like my dad. That's what he keeps asking me because he loves ChatGPT and he keeps bringing it up all the time. Uh, he he's like, can I put this? I'm like, no. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't know enough about it. I'm looking forward to learning about it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what people probably who are a lot smarter than I am come up with with it. And I think it can solve. There is potential for it to solve some amazing problems when it comes to saving money. I think that's definitely true. And the more automated you make it, the less culture you have to worry about. So I think it will trickle down. But I think the other aspect of it is people have people have to make that. People have to decide what good looks like in that area. Uh, and I hope that I just can go along for the ride and stay with it. But I'm in. I'm really intrigued. If anyone has anything on on how FinOps is going to be affected by AI, like I want to read it. I'm. It is like a real knowledge gap for me, which I'm very aware of, and I think. A lot of people are in all different in all different lines of work. So it will be interesting to see who can harness that and help people solve the like off FinOps journey using AI. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Here's where I see it affect in FinOps. I think it, it will help with the decision making, the suggestions, mm -hmm. uh, maybe some of the automation, some of uh, information that was out there that it's gathered for you to improve on. Basically, you know, understanding some of the faults that happens, but it can't implement a culture. 
It can't implement the team aspect, right? You still mm -hmm. need, you know, finance, business, and engineering all coming together. You still need that trusted level. And generative AI is not there at the trusted level. That level mm -hmm. still has to be validated by somebody with the expertise within that, you know, realm, right? So within FinOps, you have to make sure that what it's telling you is accurate. And I think at this point that we don't have enough data to make a solid decision that it can help in certain aspects, but it's mm -hmm. not there yet. And we'll just continuously improve upon it. Yeah, you're right in the in the trust, kind of going back to what we're talking about, the trust aspect and the data and the decisions. Because if you look at tools like Compute Optimizer, they use machine learning in the background to suggest instances. So it's not done by it. There's no there's no one person in an office like providing all your recommendations. And so, but still that data isn't always trusted from customers. They still have to go in. And that's why we provide the CloudWatch metrics and the ability to add in your data logging provider and all these amazing features that it has. But still people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I trust that thing. And so I doubt that by magic chat, by generative AI, if something will change in that and it will suddenly be like, oh yeah, now I trust this different um, AI opportunity. So yeah, I think it's going to take a little bit of time. And I think so many of the legacy applications that still exist that have moved on-prem will take time to adjust and stuff like that. But but I do, I would hope that we definitely could use it to automate stuff people don't want to do anyway, which is what we've done with IT. Uh, but you can still argue the fact that you can very easily write a script to delete idle resources and people still don't like to use it. So I don't know. Steph, I agree with you. And we're running out of time here, but I want to talk about the Kudos dashboard. Version 5 just came out. Can you talk about Kudos just in general, the dashboards, what it's all about? Yes, absolutely. The Kudos dashboards are one of the cloud intelligence dashboards that Amazon offer. They sit in the well-architected labs. They're amazing. They're on QuickSight. They use your cost and usage report to show you visuals and insights into your data. Add the life, there's no licensing, it's just QuickSight licensing. And it's very simple to deploy, just a CloudFormation template or two. And you could totally customize these dashboards. That is one of my favorite things about them is the customization element where if you don't like a visual, you can delete it. Or if you want to add your own business data, you can add it. And also you can set up things like row level security on the data. So classic thing we have with customers is they have multiple payers and then they're like, oh no, I don't want to have five different dashboards to go into. Don't worry. You can now pull this into one bucket. You can visualize it. And then you say, well, I don't want every single developer to see every single cent of every single account don't worry use row level security and you can divvy it up into their applications their accounts so they can just see their spend so they're great dashboards to look into your data especially if you are maybe on that walk section of the journey or the crawl and you're not sure if you want to spend loads of money on a third party yet or what data you're actually spending money on if, if you need more in-depth information than the cost explorer and you aren't proficient at writing cur queries yet or cost and use report queries the kudos dashboard is a nice kind of getting started one and it also gives you recommendations like i mentioned the incomplete multiple upload as a visual there's a really good visual on the networking tab that talks about idle resources that looks for resources that have a monthly spend but no usage spend and therefore they're not being used at all so there are all these little snippets of optimization recommendations in there along with how much you're actually spending on anything what are your unit costs and what are you doing on your commitments and very simple stuff like that everybody i'm going to provide a link in the description below for the well-architected labs the kudos dashboards i've actually had yuri on my other podcast talk about it and do a demo this is pretty cool there's a lot of exciting stuff happening 
Steph, before we wrap things up, I've got two more questions for you. One of them is what advice would you give to those who are wanting to start out in their FinOps journey? If you are in a company and wanting to start out in your FinOps journey, then I recommend getting hold of your billing data as granular as possible and start to understand what your cloud footprint actually looks like. And what once you've done that, I feel like it makes a lot more sense of where you want to go next. And if you were thinking like, oh, I think I've heard this FinOps thing, I feel like we should have a team for it. The other thing I really recommend for people is to decide, especially in the short term, maybe a six months, maybe a year, what your goal of the FinOps team is or what the priority is. Because again, with FinOps, I think there are so many different avenues you can do. There's forecasting, there's chargeback, there's cost optimization, there's commitments, there's all these different things that are more complicated than that as well. And with so many options, people again, they try and bore the ocean. And if you don't know what your initial goal is, it's harder to get business support, it's harder to get exec support, it's harder to get developer buy-in. Whereas if there is a priority the business cares about, it's much easier for you to start doing FinOps than it is to be like, oh, I think I could save a little bit of money because that's not always a big challenge for companies. So that's my big recommendation is get the data and then figure out what you want to do with this FinOps concept. All right, Steph, my last question for you is probably the most challenging question. So take a few moments to think about it. If you didn't have to be here right now, and I'm talking AWS, not this podcast, because you want to be on this podcast, where would you be? So if I didn't have to work in this area and I could do anything else. It doesn't have to be work, by the way. (laughs) The gym. All right. There you go. Well, just for for full full transparency as well. So a lot of people know there's trophies behind me. I'm I'm a strong woman. That's what I do as a hobby. But I'm just recovering from shoulder surgery. So... The, the drive for me to get back into training is like quite high at the moment. So if I'm I'm starting to be able to be allowed to touch a barbell and lift a weight heavier than two kilos, which is very exciting for me. So it's that's definitely what I'd be doing. Uh, that's the first thing I thought of. So I've got to be honest. That would probably be the first thing that I would decide too. So that's freaking awesome. All right. Well, Steph, I got to wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to hear all the rest of the Optics Teams episodes. And yeah, thank you so much. Of course. Well, everybody, this has been another awesome episode and discussion around Faces and FinOps powered by our good friends at ProsperOps. Be sure to hit that like, subscribe, and notify. And also check out the ProsperOps blog because guess what? We're out of here.